It's Window Nation's semi-annual sale, and it's a big deal. Right now, get 50% off all windows along with no interest for five years plus bonus savings when you schedule a consult today. If your windows leak, get foggy or hot, or you're paying high utility bills, that's a big deal. With Window Nation's semi-annual sale, you can replace your windows and save a big deal, too. Schedule a no-obligation in-home estimate now. Call 866-90-NATION or visit windownation.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is Matt Spiegel, and I can't wait to bring you Season 2 of the PBP, Voices of Baseball. The very best play-by-play voices in the game talk about their craft. It's a job so special that even Joe Buck told us he will probably go back to it. I'm 53, basically 54. I, I think it's too early to say nevers at this point in my life. I think at some point I'll get the itch again. Incredible guests sharing great stories from your favorite teams coming this year. Find us on the Odyssey app or wherever you find podcasts. This episode of BGN Radio is brought to you by Clip It, the hottest app that is out there. Watch TV, make clips, and share. For more information, check them out at clipit.tv or check them on Twitter at clipittv. Hey guys, John Barchard here. You guys know how much I love to play fantasy football. So I need you to listen up because I want you to join the highest rated fantasy football app. It's called Draft. You get to play in a real live snake draft, but be done in under five minutes. And they last just for one week. Drafts start every couple of minutes, so you can join right now for week 10. And the best part is you get to play for cold, hard cash. And get this, your chances of winning are 80% better than on the salary cap sites, on all the DFS sites. Because you're always trying to figure out, okay, where should I start this guy and the value and I don't have enough money to do all that stuff. It doesn't happen on draft. You get a selection of every premium player. You just got to be the smartest one in the room. It's a six-player snake draft, so you get in, you get out. Tournaments start from $1 to $1,000 to everything in between. Three-person drafts, six-person drafts, on and on the options are limitless and all new players get a free entry into a real money draft when you make your first deposit all you have to use is promo code bgnr that's right play a real money game for free just by using promo code bgnr and it gets even better draft is so sure that you'll love it that they are offering bgn radio listeners a money back guarantee up to a hundred dollars no excuses now just search draft in your app store or go to draft.com and come play for free right now with promo code BGNR. I think evolution is misunderstood. Because whenever it comes up, people want to talk about religion and laws. But it's simpler than that. Evolution is the study of change over time. And we deal with it ourselves, regularly, in our own lives. A major instance that many people have gone through is grade school to high school. It's a big leap. 
Because you go from, in some cases, spending eight years with the same people to an entirely new circumstance. And over those eight years, what you've done is you've built relationships and social structures are figured out. By the time I was in fifth or sixth grade, you knew exactly who was hanging out with who and who was popular and who was not and which person could go hang out with these people. It was all very well known and understood. And and as things stayed that way, there was no real change. There was nothing that forced it. Enter high school. And it was so interesting to see how people that I went to school with, the the popular kid of my grade school, the nerdy kid of my grade school, to see how they operated in this new environment. How'd they grow? How'd they change? What kind of relationships did they build? Did they dress a little different? Are they more confident? All of those different evolutions that someone goes through as a result of, of change and sometimes it's it's a bad thing. The common example is people who peak in high school, right? You have the star athlete, the quarterback of the team, the prom king. And when he goes to college, well, no one gives a crap. It happens. But sometimes evolution is a very good thing. And we'll discover an interesting case of evolution right here. On a pond for the review, where we go and look at the 2003 Philadelphia Eagles. You might know them for the fourth and 26 game. Hello and welcome to the show. I am Vince Quinn. So happy to be here with you doing another episode of a pond for the review. I've absolutely missed the show, and we will certainly have it for you all through the offseason here on BGN Radio. So stay tuned for that. But for now, let's travel back to 2003. You see, the Philadelphia Eagles at this time have very high expectations, and naturally so. They're a team that's coming off two consecutive NFC Championship games. You have Andy Reid, a stable, well-respected head coach, firmly entrenched. Jim Johnson, the beloved defensive coordinator, by his side. You have your franchise quarterback in Donovan McNabb. All of the pieces are there. And the start of this season presents something brand new for the Philadelphia Eagles. Lincoln Financial Field. Yes, they get to open the link at home week one of the regular season. The fans are incredibly excited, and John Ritchie takes us into the game. Monday Night Football, their fireworks going off. Sly Stallone's up in the the stands wearing the Deuce Staley jersey on the Jumbotron. And as an offense, I don't know if we went four and out or three and out, and I was immediately struck. You know, all the pomp and circumstance and excitement of the grand opening of the link, and suddenly it was, boo, you guys suck, I, I was uh, I was shocked at the the angry nature of what I was hearing, but we sort of did. Yeah, they stunk. The Eagles got wrecked in that game against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. In fact, they got shut out, seventeen to nothing. And this isn't just a, a bad loss at home. This is the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, the team that not only won the Super Bowl last season, but shut down Veterans Stadium, killed the Eagles' playoff hopes in a game that felt like destiny for them to finally get over the hump and reach the Super Bowl. Well, here they are again. It's week one. The Eagles are jacked up. They're ready to play in their new home, and they get destroyed. 
And so you got to pick up the pieces. And okay, rough loss. We'll get back to it. Everything's going to be fine. But the New England Patriots come into town. And this is the 2003 New England Patriots. A really well-run team, established team at this point. There's no surprises about who New England is. They're in the middle of being a dynasty. And they wipe the floor with the Eagles as well. It's 31-10. to And also at home. So as a team that had so much expectations, so much hope and another chance of getting to the Super Bowl and finally bringing it home to Philadelphia, they're 0-2. And it's not a, oh, well, they played hard and they tried 0-2. It's, oh, my God, they look awful. They're getting absolutely demolished by everyone that they play. They've turned the ball over six times, six times in two games. What is going wrong with this team? It felt like everything. But then an unexpected hero came to the rescue. It was a week three bye. Uh, having a bye week in the third week of the season certainly appeared to be a disadvantage coming into the season, but we needed it at that time. Uh, we needed to regroup, and uh, we were able to do that after those first two games. Funny how that works, right? A week three bye is typically a death sentence in the NFL. You think, oh man, the number of games that we're going to have to play consecutively especially if you don't get that buy in the playoffs. You're playing for 17 weeks straight, possibly 18 weeks straight, until you get to a Super Bowl. And how tired are you then? But for the Eagles, this was the first time that they were 0-2 to start a season with this core, with this run. And so they struggled with that challenge. They also struggled with the challenge of opening the new stadium, the pressure, the lights, Sylvester Stallone in a jersey. All of those things add up to a very aggravated fan base, a frustrated team, and the dire need to step away and recalibrate. Until this happened. What you're all saying is that Donovan McNabb is, re- is regressing. He's going backwards. Mm-hmm. And, and my, I'm sorry to say this, I don't think he's been that good from the get-go. I think what we've had here is a little social concern in the NFL. I think the media has been very desirous that a black quarterback do well. Mm-hmm. We're interested in black coaches and black quarterbacks doing well. I think there is a little hope invested in McNabb. And he got a lot of credit for the performance of this team that he really didn't deserve. That's Rush Limbaugh during the bye week of the 2003 season. As they're struggling with the 0-2 start and trying to figure themselves out, as they're trying to relax and get ready for the new stretch, the long, tiresome stretch that will be ahead. And now race is thrown into the equation. And it's your quarterback. And there's conversations had all through the national media and local media about black quarterbacks and are they overrated and Donovan McNabb and how good of a player is he? Looking back, the most important thing was, how did the locker room handle it? Uh, anyone that had any type of relationship with him, and that was the majority of the, uh, of the team, you just wanted to let him know you had his back, you know, or what have you. I don't think it really became sort of a, a, a real talking point amongst uh, the team as a whole. And, and I don't recall Andy ever addressed it uh, at all. I think Andy was more focused on us being 0-2. So the Eagles exit the bye. They're 0-2 with a lot of expectations. They're in the center of the Rush Limbaugh racial controversy. They've turned the ball over at an alarmingly high rate, and they've never been in this position before. So how'd they do next week? It was a little shaky. They played the Bills, and from the beginning, they were playing good football. 
10 points in the first quarter. They were winning 13 to nothing at halftime. They were up 16 to nothing in the third quarter. And then slowly but surely they let Buffalo creep back into the game. Drew Bledsoe with a touchdown pass and a rush. And suddenly it's 16-13, but the Eagles did hold out. They got a Brian Westbrook touchdown, and they won the game. The next week, they finally get a home win. The Washington Redskins come to town. The Eagles win that 27-25. So now they're 2-2. Two games out of the bye with the win. They lose to Dallas the following week, and you feel like they're going to lose to the New York Giants. They're in New York. They're losing 10-7. But with a minute 30 left in the game, the Giants punt. Westbrook dangerous every time he has his hands on the football. The snap to Fiegels. He gets it away. It's a wobble. Bounces across the 20. Westbrook takes it. Looks for running room. Up to the 25. The 30. To the 35. 40. 45 midfield. 45. 40. 35. 40. Brian Westbrook. He's going. He's He's gone. Touchdown. Brian Westbrook. 84 yards. No penalty flags. I don't believe it. Brian Westbrook has just exploded, and with 116 remaining, this place is in a state of shock. And it's almost like Brian Westbrook never stops running after that play because it brings the Eagles to a 3-3 three and three record on the season. And once they hit 3-3, three and three, they take off. They go on a nine-game winning streak and wins against some big-time opponents, one of which was Green Bay. In Monday night football at Lambeau Field. So a huge winning streak for the Philadelphia Eagles. They go all the way to 11-3. They lose to the San Francisco 49ers week 16. And week 17 they beat the Skins. It's a 12-4 record on a team that started 0-2. They got blown out in their own building by really good teams. And had a week 3 bye. Even more impressive on top of all of that is that how the Eagles got better as the season progressed. Because at first, when they go on the nine-game winning streak, they're winning the games. But they're not scoring all that many points. See, when they beat the Giants, it's 14. The Jets, 24. The Falcons, 23. Packers, 17 points. They're not sweeping anybody under the rug the way that they got swept at the beginning of the year. 17 to nothing by Tampa Bay. 31-10 by New England. Not those kind of wins. But when you look at the second half of the season, it changes. After they beat the Packers in Monday night, they put up 28 on the Giants. Then they put up 33 on the New Orleans Saints, a season high. Then they get 25 on the Panthers, 36 on the Dallas Cowboys, another high, 34 on the Miami Dolphins, 28 against a good San Francisco 49ers team, and 31-7 to to solidify their spot at the top of the NFC East against Washington in Washington. They became a very good football team in that stretch. And so you have to ask the question, for a team that was so bad at the beginning of the year, what changed? Well, one of the biggest things is turnovers. Six turnovers, as I mentioned before, in those two fatal games that they had early in the season. They only had 22 by the end of it. It's actually a franchise record when it happens. 22 is is a low for them. So they play efficient football. They're good at running the ball. And one of the 
most powerful things for this team is the controversial quarterback, Donovan McNabb, the focus of Rush Limbaugh's comments, who puts on a hell of a season for the Philadelphia Eagles. And it's interesting because the metrics aren't in a way that you say, oh, wow, this guy was a superstar. He's 57.5% on his completions. He's got 16 touchdowns and 11 interceptions. So you hear those ratios, and, and you don't think of a Pro Bowl quarterback. But that's exactly what Donovan McNabb was that season in 2003. And a big part of it is his legs. At 27 years old, Donovan McNabb put up 355 rushing yards for the Eagles that season. Three touchdowns to go with it. He was fourth on the team in rushing. And think about that. Fourth on the team in rushing with 355 yards. What else helped the Philadelphia Eagles in 2003? It was the three-headed monster. They combined for over 1,600 yards on the season. Absolutely fantastic. So when you have a solid running game that is one of the tops in the league, it was averaging just about five yards per carry. When you've got a quarterback that forces defenses to worry about his legs as well, well, You've got possibilities. And Andy Reid did a hell of a job coaching this team to get them to that point where they were 12-4. and And by the way, let's talk about the coaching staff, shall we? Because in 2003, the coaching staff for the Philadelphia Eagles is spectacular. Andy Reid is obviously the head coach. Brad Childress, offensive coordinator, goes on to become a head coach. Defensive coordinator is Jim Johnson, revered as one of the greatest defensive coordinators to have ever done it. Some other names for you. John Harbaugh, Sean McDermott, Marty Morningweg, Ron Rivera, Pat Shermer, Steve Spagnuolo. All of those people either were head coaches or became head coaches after being in Philadelphia. That's how strong of a coaching staff the Eagles have. Juan Castillo, longtime offensive line coach. Great coach. Totally forgotten in the shuffle here because of the names and the personalities that were with this staff. This was a really good, well-built, well-coached team, and they were starting to figure it out. After that really rough and trying start, things seemed good until Week 16, where in Week 16, when the Eagles played the 49ers, they lost Carlos Emmons, who was their defensive MVP for the season. And that's with big names on the roster. Like, you have Brian Dawkins, you've got Corey Simon, you've got Troy Vincent, you've got Bobby Taylor, Lito Shepard, Sheldon Brown, and Michael Lewis, all on this team. And the defensive MVP is Carlos Emmons, and he's gone. And then on the other side of the ball, Brian Westbrook, Week 17, gets knocked out for the season. And so... For the Eagles, just as they feel stable and they're getting to a point where they can finally feel comfortable with who they are, they have an established identity, and they're going into the playoffs, well, it's all thrown into the garbage again, and they have to adapt. The same way I talked at the beginning of the show of going from grade school to high school, it's almost like they'd figured out high school, and now it's high school to college. What do you do when you don't have your defensive MVP? What do you do when you don't have your offensive guy that is your leading rusher, is a dynamic threat out of the backfield, and gave you the season-changing punt return in New York? How do you handle that? How do you replace these two guys? And for the Eagles, they had to do it just as the playoffs were starting. 
The Green Bay Packers, on the other hand, were not so fortunate, and that was sort of the state of the Packers' season. For being a 12-4 and team the year before, the Packers did go down a step, and they were 10-6. and But the more important thing is that Week 7 of their season, they were in St. Louis and playing the Rams. Brett Favre injures the thumb of his throwing hand. Now, he plays through it, and they do put up some high totals. But there's stretches during the season shortly after that game where you notice their offense is not quite what it was to begin the year. Just to give you the numbers, for example, week one, they put up 25 points. They put up 31 in week two. Week three is low at 13, but after that, they do 38, 35, and 34. So they're putting up a lot of points before the St. Louis game, and then they are able to put up a lot of points against the Minnesota Vikings, but you see this huge, massive dip afterwards, and it starts with the Philadelphia Eagles, that Monday night game that the Eagles went into Lambeau and won, where they only put up 14. Then they put up 20 against the Buccaneers, 20 against the 49ers, 14 against the Detroit Lions. And you would have to figure that Brett Favre is struggling with the thumb all through this because it's something that goes all the way through the season he keeps it wrapped there's a splint on it and he wears it going into the playoffs and you can see statistically where the impact is as well because for Brett Favre as much as he's known for being an inaccurate passer at times or a guy who makes risky throws needlessly generally through that stage of his career to that point, which had been a long time, Brett Favre had been in the league since 1992, on average, the interception percentage, so on the number of balls that Brett Favre threw, the percent of times that he was intercepted on those throws was around three. Three out of 100 is is a rough estimate of the average or maybe just a mark below three. In this season... For Brett Favre, with the injured thumb, 4.5%. He throws 32 touchdowns and 21 interceptions. That's a lot. And when you think about it, he's throwing 21 interceptions when the Eagles, through the course of this season, have a total of 22 turnovers. He's almost matched the entire team by himself. That's a troubling thing to deal with. But Brett Favre's a tough guy. He was notorious for not missing games. And he was able to play. And he was able to lead Green Bay into the playoffs. So they go into Seattle. And it's not an easy game for them. Because it goes into overtime. And in a high-scoring game. This isn't what the 4th and 26 game will become. This is a high-scoring, high-flying affair. It's a final score of 33-27. to And so a dramatic win for the Green Bay Packers. And they had a 12-4 Eagles team that they had lost to. Now I have to say that this game is a weird one. And it's not just the way that the game goes, but it's where the game is in time. It's 2003, and that doesn't seem like all that long ago. There are still players in the NFL today who were drafted in 2003 or before. But when you go and watch the game, it is very different football. Fullbacks are a heavy part of the game plan. I formations. Maybe two, maybe three wide receivers, but the four wide receiver set, not all that common. Five wide receivers, tight ends split out. You're not seeing that kind of stuff. Offenses are a little bit different in 2003. 
And so it's an adjustment to see how the game is played. And in this case, it was played sloppily. It doesn't help that it was cold either. 25 degrees at kickoff with a 13-degree wind chill. Bitterly, nastily cold in Philadelphia. The kind of game where you could see the players breathing each puff. And for Eagles fans, there was some huffing and puffing to be done right at the start of the game in the most Andy Reid fashion imaginable. With 14 minutes and 45 seconds left in the first quarter, it's the second play from scrimmage. The Eagles call a timeout. They had to burn a timeout in the first 15 seconds of a playoff game. That's the most Andy Reid possible experience that you could ask for. And you can't really afford this kind of mistake because with Green Bay, they are an experienced veteran team. And for the Eagles, they are missing their defensive MVP. That guy's become Ike Reese, making his first playoff start. Troy Vincent, not a part of this game. You've got Sheldon Brown in for him instead. And then on the offensive side of the ball, you've lost your dynamic threat in Brian Westbrook. So there are already changes that you have to make. It's not the most solid situation to have. And to burn a timeout like that 15 seconds in is absolutely infuriating. And early in this very same game, Donovan McNabb fumbles the ball. He scrambles. He runs to his left. He's being chased. A player from Green Bay dives for the tackle, swats the ball out, and Green Bay gets the ball. And on the first play, the very first play, where Brett Favre takes the field, he throws a 50-yard touchdown in response to that fumble. Wow. Killer. Down 7 nothing at home and only two timeouts. Not a good situation for the Philadelphia Eagles. But they were a team that did show signs of life early in this game. They weren't able to build a lot of consecutive, consistent drives in this one. But Donovan McNabb was giving you signature Donovan McNabb football. For example, he has a scramble down the field in the game where he's at the Eagles 45. And he steps back and the pocket parts. And all the defenders are far back and away from him. And McNabb books it up the middle of the field. He gains 35 yards on the run. It's a huge play. That's the kind of stuff that the Eagles needed. That's what kept them in this game. They had an interesting play early in the game as well. And it's on the same drive where McNabb had that scramble. He passes to Freddie Mitchell on a third and nine. And it puts them at first and goal at the four. It's a big play. And Freddie Mitchell gets up and does his typical Freddie Mitchell thing. He puts on the belt. Now, you might not be aware of Freddie Mitchell. He's an interesting figure in Eagles history because he's one of the massive busts that the organization has seen. He was drafted in 2001 out of UCLA. There were questions at that time about whether or not he was actually healthy to play football. He had injuries and issues with his knee. And during his time with the Philadelphia Eagles, he gave essentially nothing. Four seasons, a total of 90 catches in that time, something that good receivers, first-round talent receivers, will often do in a single year or close to it. Freddie Mitchell doesn't even sniff that mark, including a year with 12 catches 
for 105 yards and no touchdowns. That was the legacy of Freddie Mitchell. He was known for more of the belt, which you do, and like Aaron Rodgers has the state farm, he, and he puts the belt on. That's the same thing that Freddie Mitchell did. He also would do things like call himself Fredex because he always delivers. But here's the thing. So McNabb threw Freddie Mitchell the ball. He catches it. It's first and goal at the four. But it gets reviewed. And the play is ultimately considered incomplete. There's no catch. And on top of that, David Akers goes to kick a field goal just to get points out of it. A drive that could have easily gotten to a touchdown. First and goal at the four. Instead, fourth and nine. So Akers makes the kick 33 yards, and it's wide left. And that's a killer, because when you consider the situation, they've already had a fumble. That fumble immediately was turned into a 50-yard touchdown. And then, at the time, the second most accurate kicker in NFL history missed a 33-yard kick at home. Not good. Not good at all. And the Packers capitalize on that yet again they drive all the way down the field and they score another touchdown 14 to nothing with a minute 22 left in the first quarter the Eagles are struggling mightily and for the second quarter it doesn't get much better it's generally a slog but you do get in typical Eagles fashion for this time the big play again they weren't running a lot of drives they didn't do a great job of the dinking and dunking that you would expect from a West Coast offense in 2003. The Eagles needed big plays desperately in this game, and one of them came from a very unlikely player. McNabb hits Todd Pinkston, who has a great catch down the sideline for 44 yards. And on the play, or just a few plays after that, Donovan McNabb runs an option. With a shovel pass. Andy Reid is running that today. It's something that is incredibly popular in the NFL. But that's what we saw in 2003. McNabb goes to his right. He gets the defender to commit. And then he shovels it to Deuce Staley, who gets an easy score, 14-7 to in the middle of the second. It took a big play for them to do it. But hey, they got points on the board, and you got to feel good about that. But on the defensive side of the ball, there's some issues. When they played that game during the season, on Monday night, Amon Green, on 29 attempts, had 192 yards. And then he added another 32 receiving with a total of two touchdowns. He absolutely demolished the Eagles. The offensive line of the Packers demolished the Eagles. And the same thing was happening again in this game. Amon Green... Early in the game, had a big run for 35 yards. He had another 25. He was consistently getting five or six yards a carry. It was not an easy thing for the Eagles to stop. And really, the only thing that was stopping the Packers at that point was the play calling. They weren't running the ball because for some godforsaken reason, they just decided to ignore it. Perhaps it's Brett Favre and the star power and having a star quarterback. Or maybe it was just plain old bad coaching. But... Green Bay was getting enough big plays when they did it with the running game that for the Eagles, you had no reason to feel confident that they were going to get out of this. And for a long while, they didn't. 
Because in part, Donovan McNabb, I mentioned it earlier, 16 touchdowns and 11 interceptions. And the legacy of McNabb, as much as it can get tossed around a little bit here and there in funny directions, the true thing is that he did struggle with accuracy. And you see it throughout this game. When he's missing balls, he's missing them extremely low. And sometimes they're pretty open players. Guys that could have gotten yards after the catch. Instead, they're diving to the ground for the ball and even then not being able to save it. So you have a stalling Eagles offense that gets the sporadic big play versus the Green Bay offense that's getting the big plays and getting chunks of yardage on the ground, and you can't feel confident about the situation. They go into the half, and it's 14-7. to When we get to the third quarter... There's a really interesting, ballsy situation that happens. The Eagles are at fourth and one, which is a very manageable distance. The the trends today, when you hear fourth and one, it's not this, oh my gosh, what are we going to do kind of thing, but there's times and there's places. Well, for the Eagles, in this case, in 2003, they're at their own 29-yard line. And there's 10 minutes left in the third quarter. And it's fourth and one. And Andy Reid calls a quarterback sneak. And he gets it. And that's part of the power of McNabb. When you've got a running quarterback that's as big and stocky as McNabb is. I mean, he was something like 265 at that time. And he just plowed right through. And so the Eagles, on a huge call, a wildly important call they get that first down because as much as there's plenty of big plays that happen in this game to miss on that fourth and one could have been absolutely devastating you give Green Bay a team that had been rolling with the ball field position at your 29 they're basically guaranteed three points there you're down 14 to 7 and the offense hasn't been consistently clicking how many big plays can you rely on and so Thankfully, they get it. They don't score on the drive, and they have to punt, but it was a huge moment. The fact that they were able to convert that is important, and in a field position game such as this was, because it wasn't a high-scoring affair, a lot of back and forth here. So to get that field position pushed a little bit further and move Green Bay just a few yards back, it's helpful. And now we're in the fourth quarter, and there's a play that McNabb makes in this game that is just mind-blowingly, ridiculously good. So here's what happens. McNabb's in the pocket, and he steps back, and the pocket starts to collapse, and someone moves in from his right, and McNabb sees him, and he steps up in the pocket, and he's got some space there, so he holds for a second, and he's looking downfield. But then the pressure starts closing in again. So McNabb backs out of the pocket, and he spins, and he moves to the right-hand side, and he fires a missile, and it's caught. It's caught in the front corner of the end zone by Todd Pinkston. It's a 14-14 game with 14-48 left in the fourth quarter. It is an amazing Phenomenal, game-changing play by Donovan McNabb. It's a sure sack for basically any other quarterback in the league at this time. And he's able to dodge the pressure, keep his head up, look downfield, and make the play. It was absolutely excellent and incredible that he was able to make that play. It was truly special. And so, with that, you've got a tie game. And how do the Packers respond? Well, 
The same way the Packers respond to everything. They give it to Brett Favre, and they say, hey, chuck this thing as far as you can. And he does. It goes 44 yards. Javon Walker catches it, flips the field. Shortly after that, they get a 21-yard field goal, easy chip shot, and they're up 17-14 to with 10-22 left in the game. Now we fast forward a little bit. So with a six and a half minute mark left in the game, Packers are up 17 to 14 and they've got the ball. And it's at the stage now where they're trying to grind out the clock and kill the Eagles on their own turf. So you're seeing a lot of runs and the running game has been working all throughout the game and it's continuing to work on this drive it's getting them to third and one which they convert with a run they get to another third and two they convert that with a run they move the ball past midfield it gets all the way to the point where it's third and four there's 236 left in the game Favre gets pushed out of the pocket and he scrambles to his right and he scrambles to his right and it's really close but the Eagles are able to tackle him just before he gets to the marker, it's a fourth and one situation, and it's a massive one. They're not close enough to kick a field goal. There's plenty of time left on the clock, but they're also so close to midfield because they're out of that field goal range that to not get the fourth and one could be absolutely devastating. And so you have to keep asking yourself, what are the Packers going to do? What are they going to do? How are they going to handle this? They go to the line of scrimmage. Brett Favre gets behind center. And they just try to draw the Eagles off sides. That's it. They try to get a cheap couple of yards. They actually take the five-yard penalty themselves, and they punt. Here's Ike Reese on the play. I actually thought they were going to go for it. I mean, uh, and if I were them, that's what I would have done. I mean, they had ran the ball all day. We couldn't stop them. They had done a good job of running power plays, and we just weren't out enough on that side of the football to really get any type of resistance going there, and they have pretty much run the ball at will. And so when they got to that fourth and one situation, I'm saying to myself, they're going for it. I mean, cause that's, that's what I would have done considering how they had run the football. But they got a little conservative there, and when they didn't go for it immediately, we sort of sensed that they were trying to draw us offside. But it didn't work, and the Eagles were getting the ball, and they had a huge opportunity on their hands. With 2.21 left in the game, one timeout, down 17-14 to with the season on the line, the Eagles get the ball, and they get it off a touchback. So it's 1st and 10 for the Philadelphia Eagles. They're at their 20-yard line, and on the first play, Donovan McNabb gets under center, and he hands off the ball to Deuce Staley. Now, Deuce Staley gets this ball and takes it 23 yards on the ground. It's a massive gain, and he runs through a couple of people on the way to get there, which, when you see the end yardage of the play, it's particularly disastrous for Mike Sherman, the head coach of the Packers, because Deuce, on one play, gets the Eagles right back to where they were when the Packers had the opportunity on fourth and one to go for it. So all of that punt, the risk that they decided to avoid, ultimately seems like it might have been the wrong decision. And so the Eagles have another first and 10. And this is with under 2 minutes and 20 seconds left to go. McNabb drops back. He fires to the right-hand side. And it's swatted down by Darren Sharper. So second and 10. 
with the season on the line. The Packers send six men at Donovan McNabb, and he gets sacked, and it's a huge loss. All the way back for a loss of 16 yards. It's third and 26, and the clock is slowly ticking. And then McNabb gets under center, and he throws deep to Chad Lewis, his tight end over the middle of the field, and incomplete. It's just a tad high. And there's a lot of coverage. There's three men around the ball. Not an easy play to convert. And so the Eagles, with their season on the line at home, after losing two rough games to Tampa Bay and losing to New England and dealing with Rush Limbaugh and losing Carlos Emmons and losing Brian Westbrook, are here in this moment trying to scratch and claw and keep their season alive with the most desperate of situations. Fourth and 26. No one deals with this situation. I've looked into research on the probability of converting yardage on a play like this, and you know what they do? They don't even bother. The statisticians write it off. They say after 20 yards, it's not even worth it. We'll tell that to Donovan McNabb. With a minute 21 left in the game, McNabb's under center. He's got three receivers wide. Deuce Staley's in the backfield. Chad Lewis lined up next to John Runyon. He takes the snap. He's got seven men in protection. The Packers only send four. He's looking downfield, and Freddie Mitchell! Freddie Mitchell! Freddie Mitchell makes the catch! Right in between two defenders at the first down marker. What an incredible play! But wait. Did he get it? Mike Reese, you were at the first down marker. You were standing right next to it when the play happened. What'd you see? He's short. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking he's short. I'm standing at the sticks. Now, it looked like he may have been a half yard short. Well, thankfully, the refs didn't think so because they called it right away. They gave him a first down signal right off the bat. It wasn't reviewed. There wasn't any stalling. It was on to the next play. Now, the Eagles quickly got up to the line and spiked the ball, but that was that. The call stood, it was never challenged, and it was a massive, unforgettable play in Eagles history. When you talk to Eagles fans, the lore of 4th and 26, it's one of those plays that you remember exactly where you were when it happened. I certainly do. And for Freddie Mitchell, it's the play of his career. This bust of a first-round pick, a guy that after his time in Philadelphia never made a career anywhere else, didn't even stick on a team for another season. He has this beautiful moment here in front of everyone in the most dire, impossible situation where no one expects anything of him. He comes up with an absolutely phenomenal, unforgettable play. And it's crazy the statistical impact that this one had on the game. See, if you follow the more nerdy side of sports, sometimes you'll see a win probability chart. It's something that just says, well, based on the factors of the game of where you are now and how much time is left and what each team is good at, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, we're going to calculate how likely it is for a team to win. Before 4th and 26, the Eagles' odds of winning the game were 6.9%. Afterwards, one play, 26 yards, their win probability goes up 25.7% chance. 
That's amazing. I mean, that goes from basically you're completely screwed to, well, you got a shot. And for the Eagles, they would certainly take it because after converting 4th and 26, they were able to get down the field and David Akers hits a field goal, sends the game into overtime. It's a 37-yarder. And again, you're not so confident in David Akers to make this kick because he missed one earlier, even though he is the second most accurate kicker of all time. So dealing with this adversity, it just keeps popping up one way or another. And here they are, putting out fire after fire after fire, and they get this improbable comeback, and now they've pushed the game into overtime. How are they going to handle this? It should be magical. Or a complete dud. They went three and out, actually. As soon as they go through the momentum of all of this stuff, with Green Bay reeling from giving up a fourth and 26 and a couple of strong plays after the fact that lead to that game-tying field goal, they shut the Eagles down. And so they punt to Brett Favre, one of the greatest quarterbacks to ever play the position, a guy that had won multiple Super Bowls. He'd been an MVP three different times. He was an 11-time Pro Bowler over the course of his career. Brett Favre is as great and scary as any quarterback that you would ever want to give the ball to in an NFL football game. And through that very same game, he had been destroying the Eagles deep. 45 yards, 55 yards, didn't matter. Brett was hitting it, and he was hitting it in stride. He was wonderful in this game. And so, as the Eagles give him the ball, Brett Favre, on his first snap of the overtime period drops back and there's pressure in his face and he throws the ball deep and it's picked off Brian Dawkins and he's bringing it back he's at the 45 he's crossing the 50 he's at the 45 the 40 the 35 the 30 what a play what a play by Brian Dawkins as the Eagles have their backs against the wall every opportunity to lose and here he is bringing the Eagles up out of this miserable moment and into the spotlight as they get into Green Bay territory and make it all but certain that they would advance to their third straight NFC championship game 20 to 17 the Eagles win And what an incredible, unlikely game in an incredible, unlikely season for the Philadelphia Eagles. To go 0-2, to do it in such bad fashion, to hit the bye with no rest for the rest of the season in Week 3, to have Rush Limbaugh, to have no Carlos Emmons, to have no Brian Westbrook, to get all the way down to a statistical point that no one even thinks it's worth calculating your odds of success, and they win. They hadn't dealt with this kind of adversity before. Yes, things you know, there's always bumps in the road, but to deal with what the Eagles dealt with in 2003, it was incredibly unique. They had two miracles that year, and soon they'd evolve into a Super Bowl team. I'm Vince Quinn, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of Upon Further Review. I certainly enjoyed doing it for you. And so, 
ratings are appreciated, particularly of the five-star variety. If you're on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, whatever it is that you're listening to this show right now, please give us the highest rating that you can. It goes a long way. You can also give me reviews personally. I'm on Twitter at It's Vince Quinn. That's all one word, nice and simple. It's Vince Quinn. Thanks to Ike Reese and John Ritchie for being a part of the show. And until next time, take it easy. (laughs) 